Isn't it? All right, open your Bibles, if you will, and welcome tonight. If you're here for the first time, if you're here for the first time, would you just raise your hand for us? Just raise your hand, would you? Someone's going to come and fleece you. No, no, we just wanted to welcome you. Let's just welcome our visitors tonight. We are studying from the book of Acts, so if you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27, uh, we're going to go on from there. I have a title tonight. The title is The Anchor of Prayer for the Night. Paul and his shipmates are in a literally dire straits on their way to Rome. How many of you have ever been in dire straits? How many of you know what dire straits are? Some people don't even know the term, so let me show you the etymology of it or the origin of it. Strait is a Middle English word from the Latin strictus. It means to bind tightly. Uh, that was used by sailors to describe a narrow or tight, difficult to maneuver channel of water, such as the Straits of Gibraltar or the Bering Strait. Dire also has a Latin root, which means terrible or fearsome. So you've been in those. I know you've been in dire straits, places that are very, very narrow, places that you realize that your every decision has to be a right decision. So then this is the lit in the literal sense, Paul and his traveling companions are literally in dire straits. It's a nautical term. So the voyage has been very difficult. We've been showing you this chart in the voyage, and I want you to see it. He's on his last voyage to Rome. It's a 2,000-mile voyage. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. He leaves from over here in Caesarea. He changed ships to a larger ship right over here. We know that Porcius Festus sent Paul to Rome to appeal to Caesar from here. They go underneath Crete, in between Asia Minor and Crete. They go down over this way, and then they go all all the way down to here and uh, basically no excuse me this is Crete this is Cyprus they went underneath Cyprus uh, above Cyprus underneath Asia Minor they changed ships right here and then they go to Crete and they they're going to stay the winter in Fair Havens because these Euro Cleden is coming through the north wind is coming through and it's not safe for them to travel I'll be giving you a little review then they kind of have a fair day and they pay from Fair Havens and it doesn't show you on here but they actually push out to Phoenix at uh, the very tip the western tip of Crete and they're still contemplating going because it's probably the last voyage of the owner of the ship and he's on it. It's a large ship. It's a grain ship coming out of Egypt. And so he wants to bring it to port because that's how he gets paid. This will be probably a year to two year salary for him. It's loaded with grain. So the voyage has been extremely difficult, but it's going to get worse. We show you another map and I'll tell you that it's not only going to take 2,000 miles, six months it's going to take to do this. So we see these Euro Clayton comes in here. This is the boot of Italy, Sicily, uh, the Po Valley. You know, the Rome is right around over here and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to make port they're going to try to go through here and probably go out that way to Rome so they're going to go right through another strait right there so they get over in here and the wind starts to blow them off course they want to go this way they want to go the straight way right there and I'll show you that in a moment but the winds blowing them off course they're fearful that they're going to go and they're going to end up at the end of that Onian Sea is right up here that's the end of the Adriatic and they should be going that way but basically they've been blown off course and they're fearing that they're going to get into to the 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 uh, Sirtis shales and the sands of the Sirtis. These are going to shipwreck ships. They're very far away from the from any land. They're in the middle of Africa and Italy. And when ships get stranded on those, the people, all the people, die. One hundred percent of them, because no one will go in to get them because they'll be shipwrecked. And there's no there's not enough food to stay there to 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 uh, uh, secure them because they're going to be there for a long long time. You just don't get out. And so they're fearing it, and that's why you see all of the trouble that's going on. There's another little uh, topographic sh uh, show of the ocean floor. So here's, the, here's where they are. They want to take this strait. Remember dire straits? They want to take that strait. This is the depth of the ocean. They're being blown off course to here. And this is where that storm is going to blow them off course. And this is where they don't want to go. If they're in here, they're dead, every single one of them. So obviously Luke is giving us all this detail to show us the horror of this trip. 
and the Sionian Sea, where it meets the Mediterranean off the coast of Libya, Africa, they fear, Luke tells us that, the, that it's in the, it's the possibility of being shipwrecked on these Serta Sands. So, again, look at those dire straits that I showed you. That's where they wanted to go, to that north part, but they're being blown down to the south. So, we last left Paul saying this to his fearful sailors, the owner and the centurion and the Romans that were on the ship. He says this, this is from last week. Last night there appeared beside me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. And he said, do not be afraid. Now believe me, they were all afraid. Every one of them. Probably Paul also before the angel came to him. Paul was a human just like you and I. And he says, you are destined to appear before Caesar, which means he's going to make it to Rome. And God grants you the safety of all who are sailing with you. God, an angel tells him, you're going to be safe and every single person with you is going to be safe. He, he then says this, and we closed this last week at this. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul's prophesying to them. He's obviously filled with the, with the Holy Spirit. The life lessons for us are absolutely uh, enormous. Luke is giving us the detail, more detail in this, on this voyage than he will when Paul is actually in Rome. And so he's giving us this detail because it's about us, the journey of life. Listen, uh, our life is a journey through time and through eternity. You and I are journeying. We know, may not be on a sea of water, but you're on the sea of humanity right now, and we're, we're, we're sailing through it one way or the other. We all have a beginning and an end, which are separated by the experiences of life along the way. Your path is maybe different than my path, but we're all going through that path. The choices we make also play a major role in how we react to the storms that come our way. Notice that Luke wants to tell you about all the people that are there. He tells you about the owner. He tells you about the centurion. Those men shouldn't mean anything to us unless they're making choices or trying to make choices that are going to shipwreck them. And so he's giving us every kind of emotion that's going to be on this ship because there's so many emotions in life. Come on, somebody say amen to that. And especially when you go through things. So I want you to understand, we can see from, from this that at this point, Paul, not the captain or the crew is in total control of the ship's destiny. Paul's telling him what to do. He's become the captain. He's making all the decisions, which brings me to our, our message tonight, which is the anchor of prayer for the night. So let's, let's continue in Acts 27, verse 27 29. When the 14th night had come, they had been shipped, they had been tossed across the sea for 14 nights. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic, and again, the Adriatic is on the right-hand side or the eastern side of, of, of Italy, right on the bottom of the Adriatic is the Ionian Sea, and then it's the Mediterranean. As we, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Look at the minutiae. Look at all the details Luke is giving you. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchors from the stern and pray for day to come. So he's giving us a whole lot of details. The storm seems to be over. Uh, the ship was being tossed and torn for 14 nights. And I want you to see that this ship is, is a large ship in the Mediterranean, and, and it is being torn apart. And so for 14 nights, it goes back and forth. The crew and the passengers were tossed about like rag dolls. And so we know that this is not something that's very secure for them. They've been tossed. They've been pulled apart. They've been, they've been going from one side of the ship to another, realizing that any of them could have gone overboard. Any one of them could have, could have died uh, just, be, just by, by the sea taking it away. Or the ship could have actually broke up. We read before that they actually tied it together. All they want to do right now is to make it through the Adriatic Sea. 
And I want you to understand that this is, again, I showed you where it was. I want to show you one more time so I can give you the picture. Here's where they came from. Here's where they went. Here's where they sailed from. This is the sands. This is the, the Ionian Sea. This is the Adriatic. Right over here, they want to make it through. So this is the Ionian Sea, also called the Adriatic. And they just want to make it through here. That's all they want to do is make it through this stretch because they've avoided the sands. They've, no, they, for, they feared them. They've avoided them. The storm threw them off course, probably made them go around circles a little bit. And now they're headed towards land. Now, notice the word says that they took soundings and found it first to be 20 fathoms. I want you to see what that says. What soundings were made with a line that had a rope on the end of it. I just so happen to have my rope. Now a sounding is a rope with, a li with lines on it and basically it has little, little lines tied to it. I'll explain it in a moment. They're made by a line that has lead on one end so it can sink. I don't have the lead on it, but it will sink. And then their lines had leather ties, little leather, leather ties sometimes, or sometimes knots, every six feet. Now, sometimes they didn't have the ties on them. Why would they have it every six feet? Because that's a fathom. A fathom is six foot long. So sometimes they didn't have it as a, as a tie. They just had a plain rope, and they would go like this. I'm six foot tall, and how tall you are, unless unless you're apish, how tall you are, your arms are the same length as your, as your height. And so my arm span is six feet. So that's one fathom. Here's how they would do it. They'd set, the water, they'd set it down in the water. They'd start pulling it back up. And they'd go like this, one fathom, two fathoms, three fathoms. And they keep going on. So the Bible says that they're sounding. That's called sounding. Let me give you a little bit of, a little bit of uh, some more technological information here. So most ropes... In that, in that day that we found, by the way, we found some preserved. They'll have fathoms marked every 2, 3, 5, 7, 10, 13, 15, 17, and 20, uh, 20 feet. And so they'd have them. But if they didn't have them, they'd have to sound it that way. Now again, it taught, how many fathoms did they first sound out? Do you remember? 20 fathoms. So imagine that's 20 times 6 is how much? 120 feet. So they know underneath them is 120 feet of water. Then they sound again. And they found out that there's only 15 fathoms. That's 90 feet. So what's happening is it's starting to, they're starting to hit the shelf. And if it took them that long to stretch these out 20 times, by the next time they do this, they may be very, very shallow. So they stop and they throw out the anchors. Now, let me just throw something in for no extra charge. We won't even take another offering, I promise. How many ever heard of a man by the name of Mark Twain? His real name was Samuel Clemens. Mark Twain wrote a lot about the Mississippi River. The reason he has his name as Mark Twain is because in the Mississippi, 12 feet is safe navigation water. It's Twain, two. Twain could mean rope or it could mean two. So Mark Twain knew the Mississippi River. When you mark Twain, you're doing a sand, uh, you're doing a, you're sounding. You're marking two times on the rope so that you have safe distance. So his name, his pen name was Mark Twain. Uh, maybe I will take an offering for that. Uh, all right. So the depth is getting shallower. Uh, the next one will probably be 30 feet, if it, if it looks like the way it's going. Uh, so any closer, they would run aground. And I'm intrigued by what verse 29 says. It says, they dropped four anchors and pray for the day to come. Four anchors. Why tell us how many anchors they dropped? Why tell us that about the anchors? Have you ever prayed for the day to come? Have you ever been in a spot where it's been just night too long? And you're just praying, God, just, get me, just give me some daylight here. Well, this is what Luke is trying to portray to us. Often, uh, making it through the night is not easy. 
The nighttime is the worst time. It's in the night hours that worry and fear stalks its prey. And if you're like me, you worry at night. Raise your hand. I don't worry when the daytime comes. I don't worry a whole lot anyway, but if I'm going to worry, it's going to be at night. How many know what I'm talking about? And it's usually right about 4 o'clock in the morning, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And then I get up and I think about it and I have to go to my office. I'm not sure why I'm going to my office, but I'm going there anyway because I'm up now and it's bothering my head. How many are with me? So imagine a problem, and I don't think you have to imagine much, in your own life that keeps you up at night. That's a night season for you. We all have them in one way or another. We all have them. We've all known restless nights when sleep eludes us and our minds multiply our problems, conjuring them into larger, more grotesque monsters than they really are. And you know as well as I know that what seems so bad at night, when you wake up, it's, pretty, it's okay. That's right. It's a whole lot less than what you thought it was. What Paul and the sailors did on the 14th night at sea proves, uh, provides a great parabolic uh, image for what we can do to make it through the night seasons we have. When they sensed they were drawing near to some land, they sounded the depth. First 20 fathoms, then 15. The fear of going on the rocks was extremely real to them. To, sh to slow the drift until morning, they let out four anchors and they pray for day to come. They, now, Luke tells us specifically they let out four anchors. You could have said they just let out the anchors. That intrigues me that he says that. So I take that as he wants me to know this for some reason. And I believe I know the reason. And so they let out anchors so that, the, so that the boat doesn't just drift to those rocks and crash and kill them in the night. And so uh, verse 29 provides an excellent basis for communicating something to us of what to do during the dark night of our souls as well as during any night of sleepless anxiety. I believe it's a lesson for us. Night is not only determined by the revolving of the earth around the sun, though, by the way. The very word night is symbolic of those times when all seems dark and foreboding uh, for every one of us. Like those on the ship, we pray, but for us, that prayer is also our time in which we let down our anchors. So what kind of anchors, and why does he tell us about the anchors? Because I believe that when you get in tough, tough spots, when you get in night seasons, you need to let down some anchors. I believe there are some anchors you've got to throw up to slow the drift so you don't take yourself to a spot where you lose all hope. How many are with me tonight? Man, I told Cheryl, I said, I've done this as a study. I've been studying this for the last two days. I am going to put this into a message. Yeah, I'm going to preach it because my, my teaching and my preaching are different. You know that, don't you? In my preaching, in my teaching, I lose maybe a couple drops of perspiration. In my preaching, I sweat all over the place. Big difference. Perspiration and sweat are big difference. And so I'm going to preach it because I can get excited just telling this to you. So yeah, I want to put it into a spiritual truth of what to do when you fear your ship is about to hit the rocks. Let me repeat that. I'm going to teach you what to do tonight when your ship is about to hit the rocks. Now before I do that, let me do a sounding. How many of you have ever been that way? How many of you ever felt fearful? How many of you ever had some things that some problems you were facing? Listen, that's the whole idea of life. I mean, I love to go through life and be a, and, and everything be a bowl of cherries. I found out that life isn't a bowl of cherries. It's usually the pits of the cherries. So you need to know what to do. So, what to do with those late hours of life when all seems lost? He's telling us that in order to keep our ship of... And I know what you're doing. You're reading ahead. Aren't you? He's telling us that in order to keep our ship of life off the rocks of despair and off the rocks of doubt... We need to let down our anchors. So what are those anchors for you tonight? By the way, your anchors may be different than mine. I'm going to share my four anchors. I'm going to share four anchors that I let down every time some trouble comes that I'm worried about. I let these four anchors down when, I, when they told me I had stage four cancer. And let me tell you something. I let them down every single night. And I'm going to tell you about them because maybe they'll help you tonight. So let me share my four anchors that I unleash and let down when it seems to 
when darkness seems to stare right at me. I actually went to Hobby Lobby today. I love Hobby Lobby. I just wanted to have an excuse to go. You know, I got to the, I got to the checkout. Cheryl and I were at the checkout, and the lady said to me, um, what are you doing with your anchors? Is this for your man cave? <laughs> I said, no, I'm preaching tonight. I'm teaching. She says, oh, really, where? And I told her, she says, what are you teaching about with the anchors? And I told her a little about the message. She says, here's what she said, behind the counter with people waiting in line, she said, I lost my daughter two years ago. I lost, she said, I lost my son four years ago. And she continued to just talk to me, and I started to talk to her, and we were ministering to her. And by the time I got done, she didn't even know there was another person in line. They were all the way back to the art department. They were way back there. And she said, well, you have a great message tonight. And she was just fixated on us as we were walking out the door. Let me tell you something. Everyone needs anchors. Amen. Every single person you come in contact with needs anchors. So tonight, hopefully, you'll see your anchors and you'll be able to identify them. And by the way, once you identify them, stay with them. Stick with them because God honors that. So my first anchor is this that I let out uh, when, I get in, when I get into those tough nights. Into those, and I'm not just talking about the time of day. How many understand what I'm saying? My first anchor is this, faith. I want to teach you something tonight. When I'm in the darkness, I repeat all the names of God that I know. And trust me, I know an awful lot of names of God. There are 956 different names for God in the Bible. 956. I know some names that I promise you nobody knows here tonight. For God. Oh, Pastor Mark, we've read the Bible. I know you have, and I'm not, I'm not decrying that, but I promise you that there's some names I'm going to show you in a moment that you may not have known. Many of them give us promises to our faith. The names of God are there for us. He's revealing himself to us. Here's some of the more frequent ones that most people know, and there's some of them that some don't, but these are some of the unique names of God. You know some of them. Yahweh Makadesh, the Lord who sanctifies and makes holy. Yahweh Jehovah means Lord. It's the Tetragrammaton. Look at the four letters, Y-H-W-H. That's the terrible name, by the way, the Jews call it. They won't even pronounce that. That is the Tetragrammaton, the great name of God, the I Am. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the Mighty One of Jacob. El Roy, the God of all seeing. Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. El Olam, the everlasting God. Remember I told you about El Olam? From one side to another. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Then the unique names of God. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our banner. Yahweh Rohi, the Lord our shepherd. Yahweh Repha, the Lord who heals. Elohim, a God creator, mighty and strong. By the way, that word is, in the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. That word is Elohim. Elohim is a plural, a plural noun. So who is God talking to? He says, let us make man in our image. It was Elohim. Elohim, the triune God. Then you have El Eloah, God the mighty, strong, and prominent. Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. El Elyon, most high. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our priest. Adonai means Lord. Yahweh, uh, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. And I love this one, El Gibor. El Gibor is the mighty God. Now those are some that are frequently, and people know those, and they're frequent names. There's a whole bunch of 956 names of God. But I want to give you two names for Jesus tonight that you've never heard that are in Scripture. There's two names for Jesus you've never heard. It's about the Messiah, who is Jesus. And he's referred to in Psalm 102. The first one he's referred to is this. Well, let me The owl among the, the, among the runes. This is a proper name for Jesus. The owl among the runes. Now, I know no one has heard that tonight. I know that you've never seen that, because here it is. Psalm 102.6. 
I am, it's talking about the Messiah coming, I am like a pelican of the wilderness. That's a name for Jesus. The pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert, or an owl of the ruins, some translations have. So let me just tell you what that means. It's a prophecy about Messiah and his affliction in life. Jesus is the Messiah. We know that. It was written in the first person. It's about Jesus being the owl of the desert. One translation, the owl of the ruins. In Psalm 106, it's also for us. It's something for us. Let's talk about the owl of the ruins first. St. Augustine writes about 300 AD that this name is indicative for Christians. Why? Who have been devastated by the, moving, by the movings and actions of the night. When do owls come out? At night. Now watch. Owls are active at night and so is Jesus. This is why it's saying he's the owl of the ruins. And notice it's not the owl of the forest. It's the owl of the desolate places. The ruins are desolate places. Man, I'm getting chills just telling you this. This is when you are in the middle of the night. You know why I want to preach this. When you're in the middle of the night and you're feeling desolate and you're feeling everything's gone and all your hope is gone and you have everything dashed, you can call on the owl of the ruins, which is Jesus himself, who will come and see you. And by the way, owls are noted for their wisdom. Owls are noted to be able to take you out with an intelligence and a wisdom that's going to get you out of the... Man, how many of you are getting a little bit excited tonight? Just listen to it. So he says, in owls in Jesus' day and the psalmist's day inhabited the ruins many times. Uh, they would go out to the ruins. We don't know why, but they would. Maybe God made them that way because there's a name for Jesus in the Bible that talks about it that way. And so I call on that name. When I'm in trouble, I'll call on the owl of the wilderness. That's Jesus. And basically, when I'm in that nighttime season, I know that he sees me and he's prepared for me. His, one of his names is a preparation of what I'm going through. Come on, how many are with me tonight? So... Another reference to Messiah is, is, uh, is the pelican, and I love this one, the pelican of the wilderness. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this. Those of you who are going to Israel with me, raise your hand this next time. All right, there's a whole bunch, about 50 of us. I'm going to take it to the upper room. The upper room is where, the, it's one of five left in the, in, the, in the old city, and that's where Jesus had the Last Supper, and it's also where the Holy Ghost fell. In that upper room, it's been renovated by the, by the Crusaders in 1000 AD, and there's a little niche on one side, and there's some columns going up. In the columns, there's a pelican, and the pelican's up in the column, and it's, it has some young under it, and no one knows what it is. I've seen guides up there, people saying, what's that up there? What does that mean? And they say, well, we don't know. Yeah, I know what it is. Listen, pelican, this is what this says, I am like a pelican in the wilderness. Now, just listen, because you're going to hear a little bit. A pelican, when it gets to a spot where it cannot eat, it gets to a spot where its children can't eat, a pelican will pierce its own breast and feed its young its blood. Now, I want you to see it. That's what's being depicted in the upper room. The pelican was believed to pierce its own breast with its beak and feed its young of its blood. Is anybody seeing anything? Pelican in the wilderness? Come on, how many of you are seeing this? And... It became a symbol of Christ sacrificing himself for us. And because it was frequently representing Christian art, in addition, the Dalmatian pelican's pouch turns red during the breeding season. The Dalmatian pelican is in the Middle East. So the pelican will actually pierce its breast in the wilderness when there's nothing to feed its children. It'll pierce its breast, it'll pull out its blood, and it'll drop droplets of blood in its children's mouth. That's depicted in the upper room on a column. Here it is, depicted in another, in another church. That's exactly what Jesus does for us when you don't think you have anything left to eat, when you 
think that you're going through something that you can't go through, when you think that everything's dried out, Jesus becomes that pelican in the wilderness and he gives us his, man, come on. Listen to me. The first anchor I drop is my faith in the names of God. My faith in who God is. He's always there for me. Are you with me today? Because stating who God is and what he has done for me in Jesus' name and his ever-present help encourages all of us, all of our faith, to get us through the night. It's only then that we move from, from faith that has reunited us to Jesus to faith that releases us to face our night season. So faith unites you to Jesus, but faith also releases you to face anything that's coming your way. Man, this is good. Thank you. You're right. Okay, let's go on. The next one is this, and it didn't fit on the whole line I see here. Surrender. Sorry about the R there. Surrender. That's the next anchor I put out. Surrender. What does that mean? Now, yours may be different from mine, but I want you to listen. When I have dark hours of the night, seasons in my life, and it's closely, this is closely related to the first anchor, I, I call it release, and I release something. It's the surrender of the need or the concern of the night. Do you know how many times I had to surrender my worry about cancer? How many times when, when the doctors would come in and say, well, you know what, I don't know, it doesn't look really good. You've got blood clots all over your, all over your legs and they're going to your heart and we're going to have to do something there and we're not really sure. I had one doctor come in and say, I've never seen anything like this. And it's like, you know, I, was, I was dying and he was like excited because I was like a lab rat. Let me tell you something. I had to surrender. God, I'm not going to worry about this anymore. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm surrendering it to you, God. I'm not going to worry about it. Listen, they tell me that I have two cancerous, two, two cancerous lymph nodes in uh, my aorta and that if it came back like that, it would, it would kill me and it would be instant. It would be very, very quick. After three years, they haven't killed me at all. They're still there. They haven't grown. My doctor said, hey, just go home. Don't come in six months. Come in a year because I don't know what's happening with you. So let me tell you something. You know why? Because I surrendered it. Do I walk around saying, well, I got two. You don't know. I got, well, you know, I play the cancer card once. Once in all this time. Here's how I played it. I was putting a fence up for my son. I put all the poles in myself, eight by eight, dug the holes, put the poles in, put all the, put all the beams across, put all the planks down. Mark said to me, Dad, we got a panel, you have a, you have a panel left to do. Are you going to do it? I said, Mark, I have cancer. <laughs> I played it once. I never think about it because I've surrendered it. That's an anchor. It releases you from all of the boogeyman. Come on. Somebody say amen. You've got to surrender. So, we often place way too much emphasis on Satan and his devices rather than Jesus and his deliverances. I still have breath. I still have life. I'm still functioning better than I've ever functioned. Why would I worry about something? Come on, somebody say amen. So often our nights of soul torments are prolonged because we insist on holding on to our problems with one hand while we reach out for God's help with the other hand. You've got to let go. I preached the message one time said, just let go. You've got to let go. You've got a problem. Give it to God. Why are you worrying about it? Do you think your worry is going to get you anywhere with that problem? It's not. We just need to let go to surrender our problems, our night terrors, our worst fears to Him. So, can you see the analogy I'm giving you tonight? Can you see the anchors going out when you have a night season? This is why Luke's telling us that they put anchors out. It slowed the boat down. It slowed the ship down so that it wasn't going to get shipwrecked. It slowed down all of the catastrophe. You have to have something in your life. I have to have something in my life that I can throw out when I feel like, I'm, when I feel like everything's gone, when I feel like there's no hope. I have to have something. Come on, how many say amen to that? So, Along with that, never hold on to anything tighter than you're holding on to God. Never. You have to hold on to God with everything you have. God did not remove the Red Sea. He opened it up. He'll help us find a way through our problems as well. He doesn't remove them. 
I wish he would sometimes. Sometimes he might, but sometimes he just wants to get us through them. Amen. By the way, don't tell God you've got a big problem. Tell your problem you've got a big God. Amen. So how you look at it, it's just how you look at it. Amen. My third anchor is this one. Hope. I love this anchor. And it's not the anchor like the world has. Uh, let me, Swiss theologian Emil Bruner, in 1888, when facing critics about who Jesus really was, they didn't believe he was the son of God or godly at all, or whether God was merely a just man, staked his life on Jesus being not only God incarnate, but also the hope for all of mankind. He said this, and I love the quote. He said, What oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. You have to have hope. Never, 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 never give up. Never. Amen. Never. I don't care if a team of doctors came in my, my, my room and said, you know what, tomorrow, it doesn't look like you're going to make it through the night, which by the way, they've, done, they've said that. I never received that because as long as I have breath in life, I'm not going to give up hope. Amen. I mean, it's not going to happen. And so you can't either on anything. Maybe you have a, maybe you have a child that's wayward. Maybe you, have, maybe you have a husband that's not serving God. Listen, and you're still with them. Don't give up hope. Amen. You have got to trust God. There could be just one, one statement away from changing their whole life. You have to have hope. Come on, if you don't have hope in God, then you're men most miserable. Listen, hope. Hope is a combination of the faithfulness of the Lord and the perfectly timed invasion of His Spirit into the affairs of our life. I love that quote. It's, it's about God's purpose when He wants to do it. Because we want Him to do it yesterday. Do you think I wanted to go through chemo? Do you think I wanted to go through all that stuff? And I know I'm using that tonight, but it's a great example. Do you think I wanted to, I wanted to, listen, I, after I came home from the hospital, I had chemo, I had, they, had, they put all kinds of needles in me. They're huge ones. If you're a nurse, they put 22s in me. They put a 22 back in here. It was like, I was like a half a pencil. I had that intrathecal about six times. And so, and you're awake when they do it, and they puncture a little sac to take out your spinal fluid, and you're awake. And let me tell you something, it's not the most pleasant thing in the planet. And I, had, I still have six holes back there. You can't wash for over, for 24 to 48 hours because you, because it's bleeding. They have to actually take and put a blood patch on you so you can coagulate. And so I came, I was done with chemo. I came home and uh, I had to get a flu shot. It was probably about six months after I had chemo. And the, the lady said to me, the nurse said to me, she said, now, she has a tiny little needle. She says, I'm sorry, I'm going to hurt you. And I said, lady, you can stick that in my eye. It's not going to hurt me. I've had so many needles, it's not even funny. Hope is a combination of the faithfulness of the Lord and the perfectly timed invasion of his spirit into the affairs of our life. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are praying for a specific thing right now? Perfectly timed invasion. It doesn't say your timing. It's God's perfectly timed invasion of his spirit into the affairs of our life. That's hope. I throw that anchor out. That anchor is an amazing anchor. Let me just tell you, hope, according to Hebrews 6.19 anchors our soul. It actually, it actually anchors our life. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's not a hope as the world has hope. It's a hope in, in Jesus and what he says will come to pass. Man, you're still with me, aren't you? Hope in the anchor of the soul. The last one, and I, the G wanted to go on the bottom of this one also, I guess it's the format, Thanksgiving. And let me tell you why I throw this anchor out. So I throw out the anchor of faith. I throw out the anchor of surrender. I throw out the anchor of hope. And I throw out the, my fourth anchor is thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? Well, so many people miss this anchor. But throw it out when, you're, when, you're, when, you, uh, when your seas get rough and it'll stop you from drifting into the treacherous negative shallows of life and it'll preserve your ship. 
Thanking the Lord for all things, even the problems of the night, gives us perspective and inner strength. I thank God for things before they happen. I thank Him for problems. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? But if the enemy knows that you're thanking God every time a problem comes in your life, he's going to be hesitant to send problems to your life. Because he doesn't want God to get any credit for anything. Listen, 1 Thessalonians tells us, it says this. It says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. It doesn't say just in the good things. In everything. It's hard for us to thank God when something happens, when a, a loved one dies, when you lose a job, and when, when you're diagnosed with cancer. That's pretty tough after somebody says, well, you have stage 4 cancer. Thank you, Lord. I mean, it's pretty tough to do that. But if you do that, you win a huge victory. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's your path. Your path is unique to you, and God knows why it's unique to you. What the enemy does, no, the enemy can't do anything to us that God doesn't allow. Come on, give me more than one amen. You see, anyone can praise and rejoice and thank God when things are going good and working out for them. Anybody can thank God when the good times come. All of us can do that. But can you anchor your soul with throwing out thanksgiving when there doesn't seem to be anything to thank Him for at the moment? Can you thank him when it doesn't even look like you should thank him? I am never free from Satan's terrors, and neither are you. I'm never free from his torments and his trials. But I thank God for what I will learn through the problems. Because every problem that comes my way, I learn something through it. The night seasons that I'm facing, God brings me through them. Thanking the Lord in advance of a solution breaks the bondage of worry for me. By thanking him in advance, I set myself up for his timing. How many understand what I'm talking about? Often for me, after thanking him in a problem, a solution becomes very clear to me. After I thank him for a problem, I get off the focus of the negative, and God gives me a solution. Look what Paul does. I'm going to give you proof. Look what he does after the anchors are thrown out. Look what Paul does. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, the skiff, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, think of this. The sailors are saying, oh, we'll go, we'll go lay out the anchor. We'll go put out the anchor. They're trying to escape. Remember what Paul said to them? Not one should leave the ship. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. He says they're trying to get away. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. That was the skiff. That was the lifeboat. Now, just listen to what it, what's happening here. So Paul gives them a directive. I just gave you four spiritual anchors to throw out in times of despair. Notice the first thing Luke tells us after the anchors are thrown out, that the sailors didn't trust the anchors. They tried to leave the lifeboat and escape. It's called doing things your own way. So when you get in trouble and you, you want to worry and you want to continue to worry, I know what you want to do. You want to get up in the middle of the night and you want to call your best friend and tell him why you're worried about something. You cannot handle the tough things yourself. You have to trust God, not the lifeboats that you have stuck to your ship. So watch. It goes a little bit further. Man, don't you love Bible study? As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense, and without food having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will, be, it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Not a hair from any of you. It says, And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it, and he began to eat. He gave thanks to God. This is before they landed. This is before they were saved. That's Thanksgiving. He gives thanks to God, thanking God before the problem is solved. That's what he's doing. He's taking bread. He's having communion. It's a key to Christian victory. You have to thank God before the answer comes. You have got to thank him right now. While you're going through the problem, you've got to sit down and say, thank you, God, for whatever you're going to do. Thank you, God. 
Yeah. Now watch as we continue on. This is the encouragement. Watch this. Then all were encouraged. All were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all, Luke's writing, 276 people. And God told them not one hair on any one of their heads is going to be lost. 276. And when they had eaten enough, they lighted the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. You know the owner wasn't happy about that. Everything went out. Everything you think was... Let me tell you something. When you're in a real dire strait, when you're in a trouble, when you're in something where it's really your life and death, it really doesn't matter what possessions you have. It really doesn't. You know, when I was lying in a, in, in, with stage 4 cancer down in, uh, down in MD Anderson, I wasn't thinking about my possessions. I wasn't thinking about how much money I'm going to make the next year. I wasn't thinking about, uh, thinking about how much money I lost here or how much money I lost there. I wasn't thinking about my bills. I wasn't thinking about a thing other than the fact that I was trusting everything that I had, my very breath on God. Come on, are you with me tonight? So watch. Again, it's here we learn that there are 276 people on board. I'm going quickly tonight. That's a lot of folks. Paul said that God told him none of them would die, and none did, as you will see. So let me recap it for tonight before I close. Just before dawn, Paul let the people on board of the ship in, led them in eating and thanksgiving. They had been on a fast seeking the blessing of the Lord. Undoubtedly, Paul had called for the fast as an expression of unreserved dependence on the Lord for survival. And let me tell you something, fasting is a lost art and we need to get back to it. Now it's time to eat and to give thanks. The Lord had spoken and given assurance that they would be saved. A Thanksgiving celebration during the night of the soul is a way of breaking the tension of reaffirming our conviction that the Lord has been able to and, and will be in charge of everything. Look, the four anchors can vary. Perhaps you have your own set to keep you off the rocks. In the parable it provides for the dark times of life, it's crucial to list your anchors. So tonight, if you have a pen and a paper, I want you to list your anchors. They don't have to be the same as mine. We all need to identify those anchors in our lives. You don't have to be the, again, it doesn't have to be the same as mine, but I encourage you tonight to list your four anchors, to think about them, that help you stay away from the shallows, that anchor your soul, that keep you steadfast. You can have mine, that's fine, but come on, they write them down right now if you can, and practice them during, during times when things get dark. And let me tell you something, the next time you wake up in the middle of the night worrying about something, rehearse those anchors, because that's what's going to help you, not some warm milk. Amen. Come on, all of our ships get tossed at times worries of life. Let me show you. We're all in this boat, so to speak, one way or another. We all need anchors that hold. We know that Jesus is our anchor. So why? Why? Boat without an anchor. Uh, is it important for a boat to have an anchor? What dangers or difficulties might a boat encounter if it doesn't have an anchor? What influences do waves have on a boat? Why do you think Luke told us about four anchors? you think he just told us to enhance the story? He told us so that I could tell you, you need anchors. Amen. I need anchors. This is a lesson. It's a life lesson for every one of us. Spiritual anchors. Listen. Just as ships need anchors to keep them from float, drifting away on open seas, people need spiritual anchors in their lives if they're to remain steadfast. Faith in God. By the way, you, I, I will retract something. At least use one of mine. You have to have that faith. Faith has to be that anchor. Is the main anchor we must have in our lives to hold us fast during times of social turbulence and wickedness that seems to be everywhere today. This faith must be more than that of a generic dictionary variety. Our faith for it to be meaningful and effective and to hold us fast must be centered in Jesus Christ, in his life, his atonement, in the restoration of the gospel to the earth in the last days. You have to have that anchor of faith. So I want you to, I want you to see faith as an anchor tonight. Come on, I encourage you to list those four. Maybe you want to list hope, or maybe it's prayer, or thanksgiving, or trust, or rest in Christ, or, or maybe it's peace, or maybe it's surrender, or maybe it's assurance. Lastly, let me remind you, lastly, let me remind you of the anchor that holds. The anchor that holds, almost lastly, 
But it was in the night through the storms of my life that where God proved his love to me, the anchor holds. Though the ship is battered, the anchor holds. Though the sails are torn, I have fallen on my knees as I face the raging seas, the anchor holds in spite of the storm. A part of a song that's been written. Let me just leave you with this tonight. The healthiest state for a Christian is to be always empty of self and constantly dependent on the Lord for supplies, poor in self and rich in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said that. That's why you need anchors. So tonight, as I pray, as we stand and pray in a moment, I'm going to ask you to walk out of here tonight with four anchors in your soul. I want you to kind of identify them if you can. And I want them to be a life message for you. Maybe you want to pray about it, which ones they are, but you need to have them. That when problem, problems come, you go directly to those anchors. You think about those anchors and see yourself slowing down and trusting God and not hitting any rocks. How many of you are excited to be here tonight? Amen. Would you stand with me for a moment? And don't you love Bible study? Yes. You found two new names for Jesus tonight. Amazing names for Jesus tonight. Father, I thank you tonight. I thank you that you are the anchor of our souls. I'm thankful tonight, Lord God, for the power that you give us to speak your word, to preach it, Lord God. Lord, I thank you that my anchor holds in the night. I thank you, Lord, that my, the faith and the surrender and the hope and the thanksgiving that you've given me has slowed down anything that's caused, that wanted to cause my, me to wreck on the rocks, Lord God. And I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that you have helped us. Lord, I pray tonight that you help every single one of us. I know you will. I pray, Lord God, that we can throw out the anchors that we've identified in our own lives every time we feel that we're going to crash, every time we feel like that's, that we can't take it, every time there's a darkness that's there, Lord God. Help us to understand those anchors, identify them, and throw them out and think, on them. When we wake up early in the morning or late at night, Lord God, be tormented by our thoughts. May we think of the anchors, Lord, that will slow down any of those, those thoughts that are racing us to an end. I, I pray a blessing on everyone that's here tonight, Lord. Thank you for practical Christianity. Thank you for Christianity we can take home with us, oh God. Bless us now. Bless our families, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Amen.